You are currently listening to part two of the Battle of Diu. So if you haven't listened to part one, I highly suggest you go back and listen to that. If you don't care about where you are in the story, go ahead and continue listening. Francisco de Almeida had his Portuguese fleet harbored in Cochin, but upon hearing of the arrival of the enemy fleet, he sent his son, Lorenco, to scout, investigate, and if possible, destroy any small groups of enemy ships. At the city of Chaul, Lorenco's lighter and much smaller force was trapped by the coalition navy. A vicious three-day fight followed, but the battle ended with Almeida's son Lorenco's ship sunk and Lorenco himself dead and a large number of his men taken prisoner. According to one source, Lorenco's body was actually skinned, stuffed with straw, and sent back to the sultan in Constantinople. Not surprisingly, first viceroy Almeida was pissed off about that and he swore that he would have his revenge on the Muslim fleet. Famously, it was at this point, Almeida is supposed to have said, he who ate the chick must now also eat the rooster or pay for it. After Chaul, the Muslim fleet returned to the Arabian Peninsula to refit and regroup, which left Almeida alone on the subcontinent, stewing in his hatred. The king of Portugal actually, at this point, sent a replacement for Almeida in 1508, and the boring version of this story is that his replacement, Alfonso de Albuquerque, uh, willingly sidelines himself until Almeida had gotten his, uh, his satisfaction or his revenge. But the legendary version, the version I like a lot more, is that Almeida throws Albuquerque into jail as soon as he lands so that he could keep his post until his dead son had been completely avenged. I think that's a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more romantic, and I'm going to go with that one. In 1509, Almeida sailed for Diu knowing that the Muslim fleet had returned and was sheltering in the city's protected harbor, probably because they would feel safe under the city's land-based guns and Almeida knew it would have feared getting caught in the open waters. Almeida moved his fleet into position just outside the harbor and waited. The fleet that was under the command of Admiral Hussein al-Kurdi and was made up of somewhere between 100 and 200 ships, again, the sources vary on this kind of stuff, Uh, This uh, Muslim fleet was almost entirely made up of smaller galleys, but there were 16 to 20 large war galleys furnished by the Mamluk Ottoman rulers. These are the ships that would have been, uh, that were taken apart by the Venetians and then dragged across land and reassembled and took two years to sail. Galleys are notoriously unseaworthy outside of the calm waters of, of, the Mediterranean or, or seas like that. The problem with galleys is that they don't have a very deep draft, so the sides of the ship sit pretty close to the water, so any kind of storm or heavy seas could swamp a galley fairly quickly. 
the other problem with galley is that it's its drive comes from manpower. So it has to basically hug the land and it can only go for as long as it's, uh, well, they were rigged with sails, but they weren't as uh, capable of maneuver and travel as the, the rigging of the Portuguese ships. And the other thing is these galleys, they because you have uh, rows of oars on each side, the galleys could not put guns on the sides. The gun decks weren't a thing on galleys. They could only mount guns on the fore and aft of the ship or the front and the back of the ship. So one of the main sources of weaponry for the galley is the large beak at the front, which is used to ram the enemy. And then they would, uh, the, the contingent of marines and sailors on a galley, once the ship was rammed, they would attempt to board the now disabled victim ship. The other thing to keep in mind about the coalition fleet would have been the fact that there would have been thousands of rowers, probably somewhere between 1,500 and 3,000 sailors and marines. These are the guys that are boarding the, uh, the ships after the galley has rammed home. Kitted for Mediterranean galley fighting, the Mamluk marines would have worn little to no armor and would have been brandishing spears and swords. Probably they had some matchlocks, but the overwhelming majority of their ranged weapons and their weapons in general would have just been archers and, and crossbowmen. Admiral Hussein did have the support of the local fort's artillery, which is why he chose to uh, weigh anchor in the harbor itself, but his reliance on this uh, kind of, it made him feel more secure than he actually was. It would have probably been smarter for these galleys that need to be able to get to ramming speed to have been free to maneuver a little bit more. Uh, Al-Maida's force, in contrast to the Muslim coalition force, uh, Al-Maida's Portuguese fleet was far smaller numerically, but it was vastly more prepared for war at sea at this time. The Portuguese fleet numbered somewhere between 16 and 18 ships. Again, sources vary. Uh, there were nine carracks with high forecastles and anywhere from three to four masts. There were around six caravels, which had two to three masts. And rounding out the entire fleet, there were a few war galleys, so similar to what the uh, coalition has, and a brigantine. The thing to keep in mind is these carracks and caravels, these are the early precursors to the Spanish galleon, those the, the classic large uh, uh, ships that plied the Caribbean, and basically think of your pirate ships. Uh, that's what these were the early version of. And eventually, the 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 galleon, the carrick, and the caravel would lead to the ships of the line of of, of navies like Nelson's. So, if you want, you can look at those and and imagine a smaller a little bit more clunky and, and chunky-looking version of one of those. Almost all of these ships were equipped with heavy cannon in broadside, which is the, the gun decks on each side of the ship, 
running the length of it. Uh, except for, of course, the galleys, which would have been just like the Mediterranean ones. They would have only been able to mount smaller cannons in the fore and the aft. To, to man the cannons and fight off any potential boarding parties, the Portuguese ships had around 1,500 heavily armed and armored, trained soldiers and sailors, as well as they did have a contingent of some 300 or so local Nayar warriors. The main advantage of the more modern seaworthy Portuguese ships was that their ability to strike from a distance from by using their cannons, and then also the inherent advantages given by the greater height of their ship walls. So these the sailors and marines using arc bu- uh, arc or buses and primitive grenades would have been uh, turning their ships into uh, floating castles, essentially impossible to board from the much lower-sitting galleys. midday, Almeida used the wind and tides to move on the stationary enemy ships. Using his cannon at a distance, he pounded the fort's artillery into submission and then had his ships turn broadsides onto the unmoving targets of Hussein's fleet. The smaller cannons of the Muslim galleys could do no damage to the thick, Atlantic-tested hulls of the Portuguese ships, but the reverse was not true. The Portuguese cannons cast by the bellmakers of Europe were heavy and powerful, capable of smashing through solid rock battlements. The galleys of the Egyptian Ottoman fleet were essentially no match, and the the, the lopsidedness of the opponent's weapons tech really quickly became apparent. None of the Muslim ships could get close enough to ram or board, and even if they had been able to get going from anchor to full steam in such a short distance, it would have been unlikely for them to really make much of an impact. The galleys were raked with cannon fire, oars and men getting smashed all around the harbor. The few ships that were able to break free and approach the towering Portuguese ships were blasted and boarded with almost no effort. The harbor quickly became a massacre with the remnants of men and ships just floating everywhere. One Indian writer is quoted as saying, have, uh, quote, courage availed nothing against artillery and their fragile craft were sunk in batches, end quote. By the day's end, almost all of the coalition fleet was sunk captured or intentionally grounded with the, the few survivors having fled into the safety of the city of Diu. The Muslim losses were supposedly around 3,000, including Hussein and an even larger number of wounded. I would think that that's just counting the soldiers. Uh, the, the sheer number of ships, the, the sheer number of galleys we're talking about, each one of these has a huge assortment uh, or, or a, a huge number of rowers on board. And once those ships start to go down, there's little chance of these guys escaping. And so I, I just can't imagine that, 
you know, with with no ability to escape once it's sinking, and no protection from the the splintering hulls or the berserk cannons just whizzing around and bouncing around the inside of these ships. There's there's no way in my mind that. 200 galleys with all of its accompanying uh, rowers, only 3,000 people died. Uh, that just, I don't think that computes. It's just my speculation, but I think probably the total death count was far, far higher uh, for the Muslim fleet. The Portuguese, however, suffered much lighter 32 dead, 300 wounded, and only one ship heavily damaged. So, Basically, for the most part, their fleet remained entirely intact. Almeida used the tide and winds at the end of the day to again move his fleet into a safe position outside, but guarding the harbor's opening. Only a few battles in history have had as immediate and far-flung a series of consequences. And really, I can only think of uh, a very small number of naval battles. I I think uh, Trafalgar, um, Tsushima, the, the, geez, Actium maybe... Uh, really, it's it's a small number of na- naval battles that have this huge of an effect. Uh, one of the immediate consequences, Almeida gets 300,000 gold zarafin, which is, again, a, a form of currency. Uh, he receives this as a reparation total, and he collects it from Diu. Right after the battle, Almeida also demanded the release of the survivors of Chao, and the ruler of Diu sent them out almost immediately and they were well-fed and fully clothed. Now, that's important to remember because it seems like the prisoners were well taken care of. Uh, I would think that it's something that can be taken as truth because for the Christians at the time to make note of it, they would have no reason to do that unless it was it was real. They, because at this point, they're trying to uh, make their enemy appear barbaric and... I don't see why they would lie and make them sound better than they were. Uh, so they send out the prisoners. They're, they're fully fed and fully clothed. And Almeida spent a number of days blockading the city with his fleet to make sure that all of his demands were met. And in return for not raising the city with his fleet and his men, the leader of Diu wisely sends the Portuguese a series of, of lavish gifts of, of various goods and foods, including some jewelry that Almeida uh, refuses for himself, but ends up sending back for the Portuguese queen. The city of Diu itself was even offered as a prize uh, to Almeida, but in what was probably a fairly smart choice, Almeida declines. He believed that the city would have been too expensive to rule, and wisely, I think he recognized that it was an overreach of his strategic aims, and he probably would have been stretched too thin to try and control the city. He did, however, see its importance, and so he sets up a strong garrison uh, to remain behind and ensure Portuguese control over the trade. Uh, unlike the Portuguese captives that were taken at Chal, 
the Egyptian captives that were taken at Diu were treated extremely harshly by Al-Maida and his men. Still hot with anger over the death of his son, Al-Maida had the majority of these poor souls hanged, burnt alive, or in what's known as blowing, he had them strapped to the mouths of cannons and blasted into pieces. Uh, One eyewitness account of this much later in history said that the body parts would get, uh, that the head would, quote, fly directly into the sky some 50 yards straight up, and that the arms and legs would fly out in either direction as far as 100 yards each, end quote. This kind of horrifying, horrifying punishment becomes a mainstay of the colonial movement and the expansion of European powers all over the world. And it's always kind of striking to me, given that some of the arguments made for colonization is that these countries were bringing religion and civilization to the so-called savages. And it just seems like a weird way of, of getting your message across. But I suppose that will be for another episode. So, quick uh, shift from the horrible treatment of the Egyptian prisoners to something that I think is kind of a palate cleanser. Uh, One of the cool things that you can still see today from the battle are three battle flags that were taken from the Mamluk Sultan, uh, Sultan's ships, and they were sent back to Portugal. The trophies were sent to the town of Tomar, a spiritual center for the Knights Templar, and they are still housed at the Convento de Cristo to this day. And if you have the time, check out online the Convento de Cristo. It looks unbelievable. looks like a a truly beautiful, fascinating, weird uh, Portuguese uh, uh, cathedral kind of town. So check that out. It's, It's actually very cool. Finally, uh, Almeida left Diu and returned to Cochin, where his replacement, Albuquerque, who very well might have been in jail under Almeida's order, uh, took office as the second viceroy and relieved Almeida of command. In 1509, on his way back to Portugal, Almeida is killed by a tribe on the African coast near the Cape of Good Hope. Uh, but his victory at Dio went on to to really shake nations, to change the world. The Egyptian Mamluk Sultanate crumbled with the lack of income from the loss of the Indian trade, and within a decade, it was consumed by the Ottomans. The Ottomans had short-sightedly given marginal support to the coalition, and so spent the next 50 years challenging the Portuguese for control of both Diu and the Indian Ocean itself. Even uh, the, uh, the wonderful Suleiman the Magnificent uh, got in on the action, sending his Admiral Hussein Pasha to lay siege to Diu, but predictably this failed and the Ottomans had finally had enough, allowing the Portuguese to have the subcontinent and the riches of the Indies. The Gujarat Sultan Mahmud Begada died in 1511, and his sultanate, 
that in a way kind of started this whole thing. Uh, well, they didn't start it, but they were the ones who got the Ottomans involved. Uh, the Gujarat Sultanate fell to the Mughal Empire by the end of the century. Success would also, in a weird way, prove to be Portuguese or Portugal's undoing as the other Atlantic European nations saw the potential riches that access to these markets and trade goods could bring. So soon you had the Dutch, the English, and the French swooping in like a bunch of friggin' seagulls looking to challenge Portugal for possession of India. Eventually, the limited, uh, limited by its size and battered by so many dynamic and explosive competitors, Portugal was unable to hold on, and the Dutch would really shoulder them out. But it can't be denied that for a brief moment, Portugal used its access to stand alone as the first truly global power. Well, hot damn, that is the Battle of Diu, and I hope you liked it. Truly, it is a fascinating story. I suggest you do some of your own research, dig in, find out what you can. Uh, it's super underreported in the West, and it should be up there with all the other the famous battles that we study all the time because the author Weir that I used uh, his book um, 50 Battles That Changed the World he makes the point that Diu stops the spread of Islam to the east and really slows its spread throughout Europe down significantly uh, which is a great point but it also I think Diu shows the rest of the world the importance of having a uh, a presence in the Indian Ocean, in India, and in the Indies themselves. So it, it really has this twofold massive influence over world history that, I, again, it boggles my mind that it goes underreported. So definitely check it out. Do your own research. If you find out anything that I missed, definitely let me know on Instagram or Facebook or email me. Uh, and I think this one should be uh, on every armchair general's radar for sure. Uh, that was a beast, and there was a ton of information. So if I got something wrong, shoot me a message on the website, and I'll correct it in the next episode. Start sending in your theories. Just click in the uh, click on the Your Theories link in the show notes. That'll bring you over to the website. Fill it out and send what you think might have happened if the battle had gone differently, or if you were uh, Admiral Hussein and the, the coalition fleet, how you would have tried to win the battle. I think there are a ton of possibilities, so I expect you guys to have some very cool ideas. Check out the website in the show notes for the sources I used for the episode. Chief among them, though, is again that great book by William Weir called 50 Battles That Changed the World. Go to Instagram and Facebook for cool images and to vote on what battles we cover next. And please rate and review us on iTunes. All right. Next week is a quick hit, I hope. <laughs> we are covering the raid on Deerfield, Mass. So if you like your Queen Anne's War served up with some Native American warriors and brutal prisoner marches, join us next week. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.